0: This is Coder Radio, episode 340 for January 14th, 2019. Welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that's all about the art and business of software development. Now, Chris is off getting married and gallivanting all over the desert, but never fear, I'm here, that's right, I'm Wes Payne, and I'm happy, oh so happy, to be joined with Mr. Michael Dominic. That's right, he is the seer of sea, the sultan of software. Welcome to the show, Mike.
1: Hello Wes, good to have you today.
0: You know, it is good. There's nothing like getting a week started off right. I That's didn't right. I didn't do any uh exercise recently, but I I hear I hear maybe someone in your family did.
1: Yeah, my um uh, in terms of exercise, yeah, my wife just ran a full marathon at Disney World, which is uh well, I in fact, I have to call her Captain Marvel now. It's a rule in the house. You know, I think that you probably
0: should have been doing that all along. That that seems good for a long-term health relationship.
1: Yeah, she's a she's a beast. She got a gold Mickey Mouse medal on everything. Jeez.
0: <laughs> well, see, that seems like just about the opposite of what we're going to start off talking about today. Definitely. And uh, we've got a little feedback to the show. You wrote this, so I'm just going to read it, and then you can explain. Mike and Chris are old and boring
1: yeah so wow thank you reddit um i have to say since chris isn't here this makes it much better for me wes a lot of the vitriol was directed towards him
0: oh not you you're just you're gonna scapegoat this well he's not here to say anything i haven't seen all of it Uh, so
1: so apparently chris and i's desire to have working audio and like you know Wes, I don't actually know how old you are. I think we're similar. In I age, think you're though. right. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but there was a time when I was a you know a, a you know two to seven a.m. coder, right? I was the night's watch basically. Call me Jon Snow.
0: Right. Plenty of energy drinks. You're up. No one else is up. You got headphones on. No cocaine. lights in I mean, the you were room. In good shape. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm, most productive hours. Now right I'm
1: there. a. Now I'm a in bed by nine thirty ten. Oh. But I'm up at four thirty five. And apparently this is a bad thing, and Chris and I have both discovered the wonders of sleeping more, drinking less, and working out more.
0: (laughs) Oh, so general general healthfulness is what you're talking about here.
1: Now, having said that, today's beer is a Einger out of Germany, uh, which is from Bonn, Germany, if I'm correct. It's an Oktoberfest Marzahn, which is kind of, if you don't know, like a light amber. You know, it's not quite an amber ale, but it's just on the border, but this is only my actually second beer of the day.
0: Well, look at you showing some Monday afternoon restraint I've got it's over bright. here. See, you went you went all fancy and exotic. I'm going local. I've got the Georgetown Brewing Bodhisattva India Pale
1: Ale. You know, I've heard that's good, though. How? Yeah. See, I can't get that down here. No, it's hard to find if you're not right yep. here. But maybe
0: if you can ever make your way up to the Pacific Northwest, we can buy you several pictures full.
1: First of all, one, I can definitely handle several pictures, but I, those days are gone. You're right. I mean, you're, time. you're being helpful. So, I mean, so do you find
0: there's some, I've always, I love mornings. I really do. I'm not great at going to bed. That's just, it, it, things are too interesting, right? There's another, there's more code to write. There's more research to do,
1: but when I actually, on GitHub. there's another yeah, ticket exactly. on
0: GitHub. It's right. just hard. Even though I, I, mean, I love being in bed and asleep or, you know, a nice, I read a nice book before bed. Yeah how do you do you find that once you're on that schedule you just are tired enough that it forces you to go to bed
1: no in fact i suffer greatly it's uh it's very hard for me still to go to sleep but i've been reading a lot of uh like old like novels like john le novels oh but i'm reading them at a pace of like one or two a day yeah okay which is
0: crazy that is crazy how do you find time for your work that's that's rude but i'm just gonna ask you
1: well no i can read them fast at night that's the problem oh okay so you're just gonna burn so i try through. to go to bed at nine and i'm up till midnight but i read and these novels aren't long right you're especially the right. john Lacars, they're
0: kind of just little paper pieces paper, of, little pieces of fiction candy
1: yeah candy
0: okay so there's some feedback that you you guys are old and boring and is that just based on on when you wake up because kind of sleeping is arbitrary right as long as you get enough of it and you otherwise if you're know, lucky enough you get to when we wake
1: up I, th- I think it's also based on uh, some of our comments from last week <clears throat> On a, uh, you know, Chris was having some issues with his uh, Linux setup. Oh yeah, and the I was audio. the audio. Yes, pulse audio is a nightmare. Oh god. And I was on Mac that week as well. This week I'm on Pop, but it's. You uh, it got a lot of negative feedback, Wes. And I know you were a Linux hippie. I, I think you do drugs every morning. Yes, I do. You got it off know, of a plush tux. Yes, yes.
0: Ooh, right off that grub command line. Yes. <laughs>
1: Uh, so we got a lot of, negative I mean, most of the negative feedback was like, you guys suck. But I, I gotta say, I'm not sure it matters what OS is used to like produce a show or to compile something.
0: No, I mean, there there is some meta level where maybe maybe it does, but it's certainly not the most important. And I think if you have a pragmatic look at it, which I guess that's right on the tease of the show, right? So we're supposed to maybe take that angle here. Be pragmatic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Then, well, yeah. we got it. You got to, if you have, it's either no show or a show, right? So you got to start with, let's have a show and then use whatever tools. Ideally, free open source tools would, would be our preference. But if they're not going to make the cut, well, we have certain, you know, we have certain quality standards the show really wants to meet.
1: Right. I mean, the other side of this was, and I'm wrapping like three different points of feedback into right. one line. Uh, a lot of younger devs, you know, we, we, we tend to skew young, Wes, on Coder Radio didn't like my comments about documentation and kind of following a process in your software development
0: oh you're talking you're coming out pro documentation
1: here Wow I'm pro docs and I'm pro testing <laughs> oh. which it was not a popular opinion I'm actually kind of surprised about that I would think
0: I don't know I feel like I see some of the older set sometimes not no testing but maybe you know a little more they're wizened so they they know what to test and what not and then a little more sort of blind adherence to things like tdd in the younger
1: crowd so that that's kind of interesting see what i got a lot was well why do i have to document my code i'm going to lose my job in two years anyway. okay you know and and i i don't again i do not mean to denigrate any of our listeners of course not. i can no. tell you why you need to document your code if the system you're writing is important enough to the business paying you to write it, whether you're an employee or a contractor, eventually someone's going to need to change something right <laughs> And they need to know what the what the hell is going on. I'll keep it PG for our yeah, LA so that's a good here. idea. but
0: right yeah right. I mean uh, especially if you have rather complicated codes, lots of files I'm thinking way deep down in some horrible Java object hierarchy.
1: well the example I'll- the example from last week was docker configurations. Oh, okay. And any kind of thing that was outside of the Docker configuration that needed a special command to be run on bash ought to be documented somewhere. Oh
0: yeah, right? I mean if it's not if it's not automated, yeah. it better be documented at least. It also Plus, I love you. It also seems like a part of it too, and, and maybe I think sometimes process can be overbearing, right? And a lot of this goes back to how we educate and that varies widely in different companies and or organizations, and there's different philosophies on that. But you know people get discouraged i think by having too much process right like oh it, it, the the really rigorous tdd or like documenting every tiny minutia item and obviously more documentation more testing is is generally better but the point right is that you're trying to care about the software you're right you're trying to have a holistic understanding and leave some intent for the people coming after you because you sure you can dive into the code base and you can tweak things and and, and mess with configurations or improve error handling or debug a race condition but just having a little bit, a couple sentences about this is the goal. This code is trying to achieve. Sometimes that can really make it simpler when you come back five ta- sure. five years down the
1: road. And and you also want to be mindful not to screw the person coming after you, right? Like, yeah,
0: right. I guess in some ways there's um, it's it's sort of the philosophy, and and maybe we see that this, this first with tests. I feel like docs has, gets more of a struggle, or there's it's less talked about. But that you know shipping the code isn't really shipping the deliverable. It's the tests and the exactly and the infrastructure around
1: it. I want to ask you, because you know Wes, I listen to you about twice a week. Because you're so good, I have to listen more than once. Oh, I did that. oh you flatter me, sir. What do you think? Are Chris and I just getting too old? Is it time for us to go to Elmer's factory and become glue? Or, As or the, right, should, should we fight this battle, or should we walk away?
0: I think you got. I think you got to fight the battle. Um, we have a culture right now that skew's really young, which isn't bad, right? Um, youth. Brings a lot of energy, new ideas, change. Not always not always good. Cough, NPM cough. Uh but but you know, lots of energy to try to fix things.
1: Hang on, hang on. Did you just say NPM? I I maybe, yes. So not only is it not always good. It's mostly bad. We can <laughs> have that conversation bad. if we want to have it. NPM is NPM is the uh HIV of package managers. <laughs>
0: yeah i mean respond to no i just it was too i mean you almost made me cough up some of my drink here that was pretty good so i don't know but i do think i think we need to have i mean you you know as you said we're kind of the same age chris is only a little bit older than we are Uh, that that's it's frightening if you guys are already too old because you you obviously have a lot to do and it doesn't matter if you uh triage the tickets in the morning that's the thing we're not that old no right i mean in theory you should have a couple more decades of productive life ahead of you
1: no, but they would like to, if you look at the Coder Radio subreddit, we are ready for the kennel, or rather the glue factory.
0: No, some of that might just be the things that you focus on. There's a time in life where you're kind of heads down, pushing through racing, or you're willing to put up with a little more. You know, when you first learn Linux, you're like, oh yeah, sure, I had to spend two hours kind of figuring that out and getting the graphics drivers just right. But now it's working and it's great. And then there's a time where you've done okay, that but, like, like six no, times. No
1: one's complaining that like, I'm on Pop OS right now, and I'm using a Galago Pro System 76. Here's a shout out. <laughs> Connected to my Dell, uh, it's an old. Uh, what do they call those? The I don't know. The describe model, it. Describe from the, it. It's a flat panel, nat screen. It's not 4K. It's like 256. Yeah. Okay. Is that 2K? Times 1440 by 1440. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've been using this monitor for like five
0: years. It's a it's a right. it's kind of a sweet spot
1: resolution, honestly. It's beautiful, and I have Athelio coming. Athelio, I'm sorry. Oh, God oh, I am. I'm,
0: I'm excited now. to hear you talk about that.
1: But it's. I don't know. Every time I have to do like a week or two of Mac work, I get my balls handed to me in the subreddit. I don't even understand. Like. Yeah, I mean, there and is the same thing for Chris. If he edits something on Final Cut because he has a problem, it it just seems like I don't know. Like it's cheating on your wife. Is it's, it's tucks my wife because. Tux could maybe get in shape and grow some hair. I don't know. I'm
0: just saying, yeah, i I generally tend to have a problem with some of the the, the vitriolic at least the intentions of it. I think it's fine to generally want you know want us want creators uh, in this community to use open source tooling. But I think what other people need to remember is that obviously you and Chris think about that, right? I mean, you you just paid money for
1: a Linux
0: specific. I mean it'll run whatever, obviously, but a Linux targeted desktop that
1: that's beautiful. I but bought. And to be fair, I've bought a Raytel, an Oryx Pro, a Dell XPS, a Galago, a, and the Thelio I didn't pay for, spoiler alert, a customer actually bought that for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, um, sure. That's fine. Uh, but I I bought a Dell uh, Inspirano, uh, not Inspirano, whatever their big desktop is, and it, it's running uh, flight simulation software that we wrote at the MadBotter on Linux. See, that's awesome and it's just not See, it's just like to say that the little bit of os 10 or ios work we do makes us traitors i think is nuts
0: right and you I mean, we you're trying to run a business right just, yeah right. exactly like, so you just gotta people should know that you you uh respect and try to use open free and open source software when you can and other times someone wants to pay you to make a proprietary app and uh you know you need dollars in your pocket either way
1: but you know who is wonderful
0: i'm gonna guess our audience Specifically, Mark. Specifically, Mark. Yeah, he had some really good feedback for the show. Actually, if people are interested in IoT, he wrote in there's a great option that might be relevant to the coder audience. We're talking about the Elixir programming language here based on Erlang, and more specifically, a project called Nerves, which enables you to create IoT devices with features that include live device upgrades. Nerves is interesting. I have, I'm, I've obviously uh, heard of Elixir, but I don't think I've, I've not heard of Nerves. What did you think of this feedback, Mr. Dominic?
1: I thought it was interesting. I have to say, since last week's show, I haven't had an opportunity to actually try out Nerds. But if there is a FOSS alternative to Azure, um, Azure Sphere mm-hmm. OS, I am going to jump on that. Like you know, I'm not going to say the reference I wanted to use because again, our LA overlords probably wouldn't love it. Has something to do with frat boys? <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I would definitely prefer that, right? Like I have to say, I have moved. I, can I can I reveal the kimono? A
0: yes, way? do it. Does take it. I mean, I. It's a weird
1: phrase, but I I take your meaning and I want you to lay it all bare. So Alice is not going to be running in her next version on the Microsoft Bot Framework.
0: Oh no! That was a pretty it's significant little false.
1: foundation. Wow. Yes, it's, it's t- you know what I. I can't say that I've seen the light, but I can say that it's very dangerous to be hooked into commercial companies as a small ISV, which is you know what my business is.
0: It's interesting how that goes both ways, right? Because often the argument is the other thing, right? The other It's the argument of like, well, you don't need to specialize. You don't need to be doing this. Pay, pay some other company to do it so you can focus on whatever your core business model is.
1: Well, the problem is, though, you're limited in what you can build by the boundaries of that framework or that toolkit they give you. And I think the Microsoft bot framework is great. Don't get me wrong. I encourage customers if they need a bot, it's one of the cheapest and most effective ways to get a bot. You can write it in JavaScript. You can write it in C Sharp. But I think the JavaScript SDK, apologies to C Sharp people, is actually kind of better because it doesn't have all the ASP web crap associated with it. But God, if you're already writing a node, which is just a nightmare in itself... There are so many better open source options you could use. In fact, I found a great one for Kotlin that I'm evaluating and hoping to have on the show in a couple weeks. And let me tell you, it's it's damn powerful having the JVM for bots. I don't know if you know this, OpenNLP. Wes, are you familiar with that at all? Yeah. Well, that's a Java Apache Foundation library, right?
0: Yeah, it sure is, yeah.
1: Works seamlessly with the Kotlin runtime.
0: Nice. So you can just plug and play. So were you worried plug at all? Um, were at all about overhead or anything like that running on the JVM?
1: Droplets are so cheap. I mean, <laughs> yes. That I mean that's certainly true. That's like my answer. I don't even know what to say. Droplets are Just I'm not worried about it now.
0: So so back oh, by the way, oh go on.
1: Runtime, or it would be the .NET Core runtime, which are just as heavy, yeah, or I mean, similarly maybe. heavy, depending on the, you know, the workload, right?
0: Yeah, either either way, you're going to end up,
1: you're paying for it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you want those niceties, right? You don't want to, you don't want to have to go write C. You want someone to handle a lot of those things for you, and uh, exactly, a lot of engineering hours have been poured into that, and that's probably some of the same things that uh, this Nerves project is trying to take advantage of.
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I'm going to check them out. I think, uh, I think Wes, you should check them out. Maybe a Clojure wrapper.
0: Oh, yeah, that could be good. And actually, Elixir has a lot of stuff I really love from Clojure. Um, first first class, immutable, fast data structures. And it's already got this, you know, when, when you're doing bots or IoT or serverless or any of those things, you're already kind of running in a distributed world. And, and honestly, right, like we talk about programmers or development, but a lot of us end up being distributed systems engineers in one way or another just because, well, the database is over there, and my client's over here, and maybe there's a GraphQL server in front of this, and you end up with like a dozen different frameworks and pieces together. So it's nice that the whole Erlang platform, right, they've got their own Beam VM, B-E-A-M, and it's designed with that in mind. They've been doing, you know, multiple concurrent actors running running phone switches for, for decades now. So... I don't know about nerves they admit that it's young but claim it already powers rock solid industrial products. Sounds great. Yeah, thanks Mike. That's uh, that's great. And if any of you have other projects maybe you're working on IoT or bot frameworks and there's a framework free and open source or otherwise that you're enjoying or despising, you can uh, tell us about it at coderdadradio/contact.
1: So Wes, can I tell you why I'm sad this week?
0: I thought you already did, but okay, you're sad for other reasons.
1: Wes, I'm living in a world of depression.
0: All right, well, let me be your therapist today, Mr. Dominic. Lay so it on
1: doctor, us, Doctor, Doctor, Doctor oh, Noble oh yes. Payne. I thought that the iPad Pro 2018, and I know this isn't your thing, so patience. <laughs> With its USB-C port, would be an open interface. That I could just, you know, open a BSD socket and work with, right?
0: Right. That you would just be able to connect to it like like a like a regular interface that you could go you could write an application sure. that that had a peripheral that plugged into it or talked any of the various protocols supported by that connector.
1: Hundreds of protocols, right? In the Unix world, they're literally maybe even thousands. So what I found was there was something called the I.O. kit. And we have a link in the show notes to the Apple developer form. They just have a kit for Which, everything, don't they? They have bathroom kit, I think. Seriously, it's like, okay, what do you need?
0: Oh, that's the built-in bidet on the iOS platform. The
1: bide- Great. <laughs> you know what? I would love a bidet. We could talk about this. I would love a bidet. Um, it is weirdly out of date, and a lot of it's deprecated now, so I'm not sure what that means. And it doesn't actually let you pick like a disk. You know, like we would think in the Linux world, like dev slash SDA1 or dev slash whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not so, so specific like that. So you do you it's get it's not so specific, like, and it's labeled? unclear. You can push it and twist it to read off of that USB port, but Apple's own PR and own uh, developer documentation definitely gives the impression that that's not how they want you to use it. Um, and the APIs you need to use to do that are deprecated. So, one, I linked to the forums here. I am not alone in wanting to simply be able to. Brace yourself, Wes. Access a connected disk on a drive.
0: <laughs> so you're, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. So your use case here is to be able to plug in like an external hard drive.
1: Uh, well, what I really, yeah, there's a couple things I want to do. I'm plugging a hard drive. I also would like to be able to plug in a like Raspberry Pi board and actually like program the board from an iPad. Oh, like
0: yeah, I'd be able to flash it from
1: just like flash it from an iPad. Um, basically, do all case, the
0: normal USB things.
1: It, right, I, I, I want the USB C port to actually be a USB C port. Right? It seems like at present that is not the case. There's an Apple developer forum. That's depressing. I don't even know what to say. I mean, it comes down to these are the cases that are allowed. You can try anything else you like, but you have to get through app review. Well, of which... course you have to get through app review, right? Right, but it's kind of like if you try something new, you need to develop. The, you can't like call up and say, "Hey, I have this idea for an app. What do you think?" You have to develop the app first, and then if they say no, guess what?
0: Nothing, right? You 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 have
1: you're out Zero you're out options. Right. So that's pretty disappointing, and, it, it, and they mentioned specific cases that they support. You know, music through Apple Music and. Photos through photos, photos.app rather. So it's it's it seems to be the case that while it is technically possible to access the USB port on the iPad Pro twenty eighteen. I can't say for sure because I, I did it, I did call app review, my and they kinda laughed at me. Oh really? Yeah, I just couldn't get through. They said we don't comment on unsubmitted on, on apps and the young lady I spoke to said submit your app and I'll let you know.
0: That is just not a workflow. How I mean, okay, maybe for a big yeah. company, but as an independent developer, how are you supposed to do that? Well, it means I can't do the project.
1: You just right, right. you can't I even explore
0: working on what might be a pretty neat right. app.
1: So, it's kind of like it seems like they don't envision the iPad Pro as an actual full-powered workstation computer. They see it as something. They call it a computer? You see there's something else. I'm hoping in the next version of the iOS SDK, there are some Apple approved. I can imagine it using shortcuts, which is an Apple... Uh, it's basically the crappiest implementation of Unix pipes I've ever seen in my life. That's what I was about to say. I, you see, that's right. funny
0: because I've heard a lot of, uh, from some people who will go unnamed, a
1: lot of positive
0: things that, you know, like finally this has added a layer of like real utility to some of these apps that it were in It does, no, silence. it's great.
1: But it's only great because the restrictions are too high, right? Like if you just had a – if it was just the case that you could share data between apps in a normal kind of unix bsd way, you wouldn't need shortcuts, right? Yeah.
0: Like I can see why they didn't go full file system metaphor, but they didn't give you a lot between that, right? Like I could – it could be whatever, some more abstract object storage style system. But I want to be able to just like share these stuff between apps and have them coexist like they're running on the same machine.
1: Yeah, that's not the case.
0: It is interesting. I I just got my for Christmas. I got my father an iPad, and he'd used uh, like Windows, I don't know XP probably for his job before he retired. Just as like you know, had some software he had to use specific to his field, and then otherwise, it doesn't really use computers. So I was thinking about this in the same way. It's not a traditional computer. Right, a lot of their branding talks about how it's sort of redesigned. It has They've taken, I mean, almost in a BSD style approach, like they've taken this very minimal core of stuff that they want to implement and slowly extending it from there rather than like a general purpose computer that's been somewhat locked down. And it seems like it could work for like in one case, I think my, my father's actually doing pretty well on it for that same reason, right? It's hard for him to damage anything. It's hard to break stuff. There's just not that much you can do to it because your interactions are limited and each one of them has really been thought through in the context of all the other actions. But I imagine it. Right. But for technical users, it's just a lot of it's more walled garden and roadblocks.
1: Well, for in a weird way, the iPad is actually the ideal of the personal computer. If you mean a personal computer to be a non-technical user using it for, you know, personal use. Right, right? just like
0: social media, communication, standard stuff.
1: Yeah, I can I can see that. It is disappointing. Oh, Wes, that. take us out of this pit. What do you you have something good for us, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. Hard segue.
0: Hard segue. Yeah, I mean we don't need to be we don't need to be so sad about USB-C. It is a shame, but at least the iPad has USB C. We're gonna we're gonna just clip it right there and say. Maybe in the future things will be opened up. Only time will tell, and we'll check in with a very frustrated surely, Mister Michael Dominic, in the future. So when we were talking about IOKit just now, I noticed I saw I saw a lot of a lot of .h files, um, some of their other reference documentation, but it didn't seem particularly targeted towards our friend Swift. And I uh, I'm wondering how you. I've heard. I mean, I, I try to listen to Code Radio every week. I don't always make it, but. Your thoughts on Swift seem to. I, honestly, I don't even know what the graph looks like. I it's too complicated for me to draw.
1: I want to know where you're at right now. So, so the simple answer to your question is: uh, first of all, if you actually dig into the documentation, there all when you see "funk," that's Swift. So Swift can easily consume C Objective C. Excellent. Okay. See, I'm, I I did not know that. Yeah. So, so the reason it's .dot h is yeah. I have complicated feelings towards Swift. I thought you were not gonna drag me into this, but that's fine. So Swift is a complicated language, actually. I still kind of feel like it's a little bit of a mongrel uh, in the dog sense in that it's too many things at once. So for instance, it's got this idea of protocol-oriented programming, right? Which basically means you should write your data structures as structs instead of uh, classes. I wrote enums. But Which is great because, lesson, like there is a problem in Swift, or maybe not a problem, but an implementation detail of when you write a class in Swift, you actually call the Objective-C runtime. Oh, really? And that has a lot of memory overhead, yes, compared to a Swift struct. So if you write, for instance, if you have a user model and you want to write it as a struct, that is a lot lighter than writing the same model as a class. Now, there are some disadvantages of it, the big one being, in practical terms, that you cannot subclass a struct, right, because there's no such thing.
0: Right, yeah, it's not. That makes perfect sense.
1: So it's interesting. Like, a lot of the supposed speed gains by Swift are by avoiding using OO.
0: Right. It's right. Because, it, I mean, what you basically they've stolen some of the fancier functional programming style things, right? So you can do all that stuff at compile time. You right, have all they these have structs that implement function. various interfaces. Exactly.
1: Exactly. It's structs that implement various, what Swift calls protocols, but are effectively fancy interfaces with some extra sugar. Optionals, I think, in Swift are. Solving a problem, I'm not sure that real people have. So let's talk about that more. Um,
0: optionals, are we talking about uh, like like the maybe monad?
1: Kind of. It's a, it's it's slightly different. So for instance, if we had like var mike, Mike's, var mike underscore name string, colon string, And we put a question mark on the inner string, that's an optional. Swift does and this is I mean Monads do the same thing, they unwrap it, but the way the Swift kind of runtime implements that is it's very strange. Um the idea being that you should never be able the compiler should catch you from calling an optional that could be nil.
0: Right. But so that you've, is, you've already accounted for it at a at a higher level of abstraction than the compiler can read. Well them. no, if you haven't if you have an optional
1: and it could be nil, you have to do something with
0: it. Right. Okay. Yeah, you have to handle the case of this might be
1: nil. Right. But it really makes your code kind of crappy and messy. Um you end up in these weird pyramid structures like if nil or if unwrap, whatever, right? There's a billion ways to do it in Swift. Where it's just like, I would love to know, and I'm sure there's no way to find this out, how many people who are writing Objective-C actually crash their applications because they forgot to initialize a variable? In like real-world cases. I'm not talking about like during dev time.
0: Right, you're talking about like of um, problems out in the in the production world, the, of, production of world. errors that users care about and are having, was was like nullability, was stuff like that. Did Was that really a problem? Was that the first thing on the list that needed to be solved? And is it worth the overhead of a reason about
1: it so explicitly? Because the level of complexity that the optional Swift uh, system brings to Swift is, is just much greater than handling values, um, variable values in Objective-C. Now, it's interesting because you come from more of a functional world, right? You might tell me, well, this is just how life is.
0: Well, you know, actually, it's interesting. I think that's one it's a it's an ergonomics question in some ways, right? you can you can you can have arguments about safety and other things. But at the end of the day, you're probably paying developers to make products for users who are paying for it, and they want, I mean, sp- speed has to be a factor as much as correctness at times. Obviously, you want you want correct code. Um, but as you say, there there might be some times where it does add a lot of overhead. And there are other ways to deal with it, stuff like nil punning from the Lisp world, maybe. Um, obviously there's tons of languages. What is that?
1: If you can just jump in.
0: Well, uh, treating having null or nil, um, but having a lot of your core built-in functions have an understanding of that. So instead of throwing a horrible exception, it just returns the value that sort of makes sense for that. So like if you try to get the the next part of an empty list, you might get back nil. So you can sort of check for that. And if you have nil also have a, a falseness to it, then you can you can do you know sort of truthy evaluations that way too. So there are some ways. It's not as explicit, right? You don't always you don't have the compiler to help you in that same way. Another approach I can think of is we were talking about Elixir and Erlang earlier, and Erlang has an interesting sort of solution where a lot of times you end up coding on the so-called happy path, and not because you aren't thinking about failure, because you've because you've planned at it in a higher level. So you might have these they have these supervision trees where you have. One process, let's say you need to go download, like, a list of 200 URLs that your user has inputted to you. So you spawn a process, maybe for each of those, to go off and go fetch that URL, and then you aggregate it in some data structure somewhere. Well, each of those might fail, right? Like, that might be a bad URL, or that server's having a problem and you need to retry it. As you launch all these processes, you can can put those stuff in, right? You can say, like, give it this number of allowed retries. Here's your thresholds you should do. What happens when you fail? Do you come back up to the caller above, or do you launch a different error handling process? So then your actual code down in the in the you know the deep stuff that's doing the HTTP request say, well, it doesn't have to care about that so much. They have this philosophy of let it crash. So you know, you expect that that little process you spawned off, it, it might crash, but the supervisor watching it already knows how to handle that and has a policy procedure in place.
1: See, that, so that might be a better way. I mean, the one thing I think that the Swift optional kind of pattern gives you is that you can use optionals in a way to handle control of flow, right? So the thing that huge Swift people will tell you is, oh, the guard let statement. It's all about the guard let statement, right? Have you seen this before, Wes? No, go into it a little more. So guard let is basically a fancy way to say if if value is nil, let it be my value is. But it is kind of one of the quote unquote advanced, and I'm making sneer quotes here, Swift tactics to basically handle the optional case of something being nil. And it is certainly useful. I could see how that would be like a nice thing to have. But as I'm looking at C sharp and other languages, particularly C sharp's nullable uh, implementation, that is very similar to Swift's. I mean, it almost looks like directly inspired from Swift. I think we're just adding a lot of noise to our code.
0: Right. I mean, I suppose this this comes down to um, another question of like, where do you do your validation? Is it throughout, or do you have sort of firmly validated borders at API calls or other gateways between libraries? And then do you just sort of assume things are working with you know, ways to report exceptions. Or do you have something more like this where it's where it's type checked and and everything is through and through validated and you have rigorous error testing at each and every level? Right? Because if you had already um, I'm looking at an example here, right, where they have multiple guardlets. They're grabbing name field.txt yep. and address field dot text. So one they have options here, right? Where so they have this guardlet, they have a way to handle well, what if this is nil? Which is great. You do want to handle that but maybe you also had a a function somewhere else that already validated this whole data, turned it into a type that had everything there that wasn't nullable, and then you could pass it on to a simpler function.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think it really comes down to, is this a problem that really needed to be solved?
0: Yeah, okay. How would you compare it to, you were mentioning Kotlin earlier in the show. Uh, I have just heard rave reviews for how Kotlin handles null, and so how would you compare those two?
1: I think Kotlin's null handling is less heavy-handed. I think it's a lot better. Now Kotlin does come with a requirement to be compatible with J, the Java and the JVM. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so it it can't go quite as extreme as Swift, right? Yeah, but I mean, my, my, as a
0: compiled language, Swift Swift can kind of uh, reach farther. It has less overhead. Doesn't have a giant VM with it,
1: right? I mean, my, my general argument against Swift is that they've gone too far with this optional stuff, right?
0: So they I wonder have, if there's oh. a, an, an analysis, like um, when you look at how people use Scala, it's all over the place. But you see some shops where they were trying to get people from Java to come over to Scala and they had people there who were, you know, maybe former Haskellers or just really hardcore functional programmers. I've seen a lot of people who they were interested in some of those techniques, but it was just like. It was a little too much, and it didn't focus on the the, the top five prob- prob- problems that they had with Java. Like people, you know, you want the you want the not having to type types everywhere, you want inference, you want those things, but maybe you don't need to have learned like a, a dozen things from category
1: theory. Yeah, see, see, this is you you've hit the point exactly. So, in episode one hundred and four of Code Radio, I was pretty negative on Swift when it was announced. Legendary! I freaked out.
0: One oh four. Everybody, go uh, give that a re-listen.
1: If you look at Swift and say, "Does this solve the problems of Objective C?" Well, first we'd have to agree on what the problems were. My argument, you know, Swift solves the problem of Objective C being kind of hard because it's basically a super—I mean, not basically—it is a superset of C, right? Like you have to know C to do Objective C, right? The challenge, and you have to know pointers, which I think. Swift so removes you having to new
0: pointers, right? And that is something of a mismatch. Maybe it d- sort of depends, you know, right, because the targeting, like what what you, app you might be building, could be different. And sometimes you might be building a a simple app that does presentation, pulling from some API. Okay, you know, probably don't care about pointers in that case. You're not doing anything fancy.
1: Exactly, but they they also removed one of the powers of the Objective C runtime, which is being a messaging model where. You know, calling like in Java, calling something that an, a nil object is a, a null runtime exception, right? Yeah, famous NPE. Right. You can actually send a message to a nil object in Objective C. Oh, uh, almost a uh, like like a small talk heritage. It is well, it is a small talk heritage exactly. Swift gives that up almost completely, and says that if something is nil, something is wrong, which. I just, I just don't think it's the case. If we're writing a complex application, it's my opinion that a language ought to be looser, not tighter. Where Swift wants to try to solve every problem at compile time. The challenge with that is the code is, I mean, it can become really complicated. You have to understand a lot of concepts like unwrapping the value of a variable. Um, you have to understand like when structs versus classes are right. Reference by reference or reference by value. And it, it, there's all kinds of weird edge cases that I think Swift actually adds where Objective-C was an incredibly simple language. It, I mean, it's C. Right, once you got past the C part. Then... Once you got past the C part, the Objective part is super simple. And, and I think the Chris Lattner, who developed uh, Swift, would say the problem with Objective-C was that it was C. Right, like I just think that he just took the completely wrong design path, right? Like something closer to a C-sharp. And the irony now is, of course, the C C-sharp is actually embracing the concepts of Swift. So Swift, even for our listeners who are not Apple people, Swift is going to influence your work either way.
0: Yeah, that was kind of going to be my next question here is, yeah,
1: there are obviously
0: trade-offs, but is Swift the future? Does Swift have, even if you're not going to switch to Swift today, does Swift have stuff that developers should be paying attention to?
1: Well, there's definitely a class of people inside of these big platform companies, um, Microsoft and Apple particularly, who feel that runtime null exceptions are a problem. And the Swift style of handling quote-unquote optionals against near quotes, um, I mean, just the fact that Swift and and C Sharp are embracing it, C Sharp 8 is embracing it. That's huge, right? There's a lot of developers who work in those languages. Yeah. C Sharp more than Swift. So it may just become that, you know, the best practice is null, nil, or C sharp calls it null, right? We have a yep. nil and null can mean but this idea of nothing, no value. Yeah, right. It's it is definitely. geez, I don't want to say something too crazy, but I feel like this is the end of the small talk heritage in a lot of ways, of the idea of message sending this is it. This is full compiled. Everything I compile time. Oh, yeah. No, I think you are spot
0: on there. We have lost. And I think it's a shame that not more people have experienced the the, the dynamic nature of small talk. You know, I mean, you, you were in a whole system designed and explorable and changeable by you. And when you go really heavy, you know, static types and all comp compiled beforehand, there's, there's obviously a lot of benefits right from from speed, from reasoning about the application to IDE benefits. But you do lose that dynamic nature.
1: Yeah, you definitely do.
0: So it's hard to go, you know, you can't necessarily easily, some some things you can, uh, but, you know, go pull up a, a REPL inside your application and investigate it or, or go inside and, and explore values at runtime.
1: Well, and there's just a lot of extra like CRUD code you have to write just to like handle all the compiler's demands where you might know that something will never, ever, 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 ever be null or nil but the compiler forces you to name it an optional, right? There's yep.
0: I think I think one thing um, we're hitting on is, obviously, one goal of programmers is to be able to understand the applications they develop. And oftentimes, we're in zones where we don't... You can't have the whole pipeline in your head, right? It's it's just too big. And so I think that's where a lot of the, the value and motivation for some of these more heavy-handed static typing applications come from. Personally, though, I mean, I think kind of what you're maybe getting at is simplicity is also important. And while we want, right, like simplicity is maybe one of the key ways that you can get to actually reasoning about your program. And maybe the compiler helps you less. But if it's, if the result of that is you have a simple three-line function that you can just read and and understand, that might be worth it.
1: Yeah, I think the best co- the best programming language gives you very little tools and it's just very simple. That's one of the things I love about Objective-C For everybody's complaining, or everybody, but for a large percentage of the community is complaining, Objective-C was actually extremely simple language. You sent messages to objects. You had all the C, uh, you know, if everything at that level was a C, right? All the control control flow statements, if, while, whatever. And you had a few add-ons to that. But that was it. Anything else you wanted to do, you had to pull in a library and implement it that way, or implement it yourself. Where I, I feel that particularly Swift is trying to say everything's built in, um, and where the are, is Swift, oh, well, kind of, is it functional? Eh, kind of, is it protocol-oriented, whatever that means? Kind of, right? Like, it's basically everything to everybody while being nothing to no one.
0: <laughs> and then it's like, I guess that is a danger of um, broad languages sometimes is you don't have one set right way of doing right. things. You don't have one target audience. You uh, are general. Okay, well, I'll be, I'll be curious to see how this evolves. You know, clearly clearly, there's a trend right now. Static static typing, uh, a lot of these tool sets and ideas are kind of in vogue. And I think in many ways for the right reasons, we did have an era Perhaps you might call it the tar pit of kind of overly complex object-oriented programs that had a lot of mutable state and were pulling on each other's strings and were pretty hard to reason about. And a lot of the ideas in Swift, for example, are some ways to try to deal with that. So I'm glad we're at least doing it. I don't know if, you know, we probably won't find one solution. We'll see if Swift gets better uh, and what your take on it in the future is, Mr. Dominic. I'm curious. I just saw you over on, on that there Twitterverse. Tweeting away about serverless, and I was kind of curious. There's kind of um multiple ways you can you can use serverless. There's one is sort of a notion of like a little CPU cluster, a little cluster of compute that you have. Say like a cron job, maybe where you say, "Hey, I want this to be run every so often," or on a request, do this little thing. It's a little mini computer. I just have one job to do, and it'll go send this off to another API. But then there's also, at least on a lot of the implementations we're seeing today. Something that comes along with serverless is this this sort of meshed network of different events that you can have, right? So you have, you know, AWS gives you a thousand and one different events that you can have key to trigger a Lambda. And so whether or not you really care about the compute, you might, you might just care about having that event system. I'm curious what you're using it for both business and pleasure.
1: Yeah. So it's a lot of data processing, but you're not wrong that it's the event queue, when something happens, you know, run this, uh, you know, very tight F sharp or uh, Node function.
0: Are you writing F sharp
1: lambdas over there? Yeah, yeah. Oh man!
0: And you weren't even gonna
1: mention that. Okay, so I was at a dance social and I met this guy named F sharp. So F sharp's not bad, right? F sharp is fast. Um, no, I think it's under something. undervalued, honestly. Yeah, I think it's weirdly underappreciated because it runs actually really, really well on Linux. And it's kind of the bastard child of the .NET community in a lot of ways. It's, like, if you told me you wanted me to write a serverless function for you and you gave me a choice between Node and F-sharp, I would probably be tempted to go F-sharp.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can see why, right? You get, like, a real runtime with um, real
1: concurrency. You get... And it's a much purer language than JavaScript.
0: Yeah, you know, JavaScript just, they keep adding a ton of stuff, and at least they're trying to steal some good ideas, but it is just never, ever going to be a pretty language.
1: Yeah, I mean, for the next version of Alice, we are writing some of the, uh, so the architecture is a little unusual, I guess. A lot of serverless components that process various... Uh, data issues that have caused us problems in the past, and many of them, if not all of them, are going to be in F-sharp. So far, the three that exist are in F-sharp.
0: So do you also then get some of the benefits of having that shared runtime, like um, good AWS API implementations for that well, we don't
1: give a crap, right? So we throw it up on Lambda or Azure uh, Azure Functions, and they just handle it. Which is kind of the beauty of the whole serverless thing, right?
0: Yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to care. You get everything built in for you.
1: Don't care at all, and and particularly for uh, you know F Sharp being more of a functional language, a functional style. Uh, I mean, I don't Wes. If your experience is different, I'd love to hear it. But uh, a functional style on serverless, I have found, has been kind of the best way way to go. Right? What you know, data comes in to the function. Data goes out.
0: Yeah, it's very data-oriented, and you end up, a lot of times, you're building pipelines, right? They're, I mean, they're broken apart, but you're just, yeah, you're grabbing some data, you're transforming it or analyzing it or sending it to a database, you're doing something with it and passing it along.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I am not here to advocate for .NET languages, but if you are curious, um, go to fsharp.org, and I, I would say that of the .NET languages, and I've been a pretty pro C-sharp guy, I think F-sharp is probably the best language Microsoft has ever produced. And now they have, I mean, it's a its a completely false language. Yeah,
0: right. I mean, now that we have .NET Core, it's,
1: go, well, no, go run they, it. There's actually an F-sharp foundation by itself.
0: Oh, really?
1: Yeah, because a lot of folks are using it on Linux and BSD for uh, like genetic processing and data science f sharp has kind of gone its own way from the whole.net community it's weird f sharp is yeah
0: that is that is very
1: interesting
0: yeah i mean you're, you're probably right about that we should we should see more of it the.net runtime is is, is nice uh, and f sharp has a lot of those principles you keep seeing c sharp pull ideas out of f sharp and implement it over there so they must be
1: doing something right Oh, C-sharp will just take anything. Oh, sorry.
0: (laughs) But they do, I mean, they generally do it in a nice way, right? Like their um, async await implementation, I think, was ahead of the pack and is pretty nice.
1: I think it is, yeah. I mean, I think, in fact, I think the async await API is one of the things where other languages have tried to implement it, Uh, notably Java.
0: Yeah, right. Python, too.
1: C-sharp one. Who
0: did it? Uh, I mean, Python is has, uh, it's not quite the same, but uh, explored similar, similar ideas in the okay. asynchronous yeah. world. So, okay, so um, ma- maybe lot. one of the themes here is simplicity. How do you find that? I feel like I've heard a lot of mixed reports with serverless, both good and bad. Um, if you reach a certain scale, then you just have to be distributed, right? You kind of have to break things apart. You just can't yeah. have monoliths. Uh, and so serverless is, is ready to meet that need. But as maybe a smaller operation sometimes, how, when does it or does it not sort of, you know, if you already have droplets, you're already running stuff, when do you write a cron job that just runs there and you update a text file versus go deal with the the more complicated and higher abstractions of something like serverless?
1: So serverless is when I want to use a, uh, I mean, and it'll be different for a bigger shop, right? So listeners don't like freak out. For a small shop, cost of overhead is kind of your, your raison d'etre, right, it's your driving yep. principle. Yep. So when I have something that might peg the CPU on my droplet, let's say my $10 a month droplet, the cost of just running it on an Azure function or a uh, Lambda instance on AWS tends to be less than having to go up a droplet permanently because that's kind of a permanent function on, I use Do as my host. Those are the kind of things that, um, that I, so for instance, we used to have an old version of Alice that processed via OCR PDFs. That always pegged the scene. Oh, yeah, right. Sure, you're doing a bunch of graphics so we threw work. That, yep. We threw that into an Azure function droplet running an F-sharp library to, uh, with some custom code, obviously, to function and then uh to process the PDF and then send back whatever relevant data back to the uh, DO droplet. It's that kind of thing that we're using it for.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. So it's not kind of what I was thinking is you can end up with these, you know, what what used to be a bunch of code in like one one library for your for whatever language you're running that's split up into six different things that are each you know with queues in between them, which are great, right? Like queues can be wonderful for decoupling, but you also then have you come to the operational side and now you have like six different queues that the back pressure you have to monitor on and understand where things can fail in each of the phases between the pipelines. But I guess if you're using it as more of a standalone thing, something a little bit simpler that just sort of runs and churns with a little bit of data and puts it somewhere else and you don't have to think about it, then it makes sense.
1: I'd been looking... Well, and it's a a big cost-saving too, right? It's a performance and cost-saving.
0: Right, so even even if there was a little bit of operational overhead or just having to adopt this new system, right, getting, integrating whatever monitoring you already had with the rest of the AWS stack, the fact that, like, it's, it's pretty darn cheap if you're not doing crazy things with it. That's a big seller.
1: Exactly. Well, and it's cheap if you're only doing stuff every once in a while with it,
0: right? Right. It doesn't have to really handle every request, but if it does enough of those background jobs to just keep the data fresh.
1: Yeah, that's exactly
0: it. Interesting. I've been looking at... um. So it's by the, it's by the consultancy Cognitech that makes... Clojure, actually, Uh, they have a new project. They've got this fancy functional sort of database called Datomic. um, And they recently launched it as a AWS marketplace application. So you can go spin it up. It costs like a production, like the the base version is probably like a dollar a day. Um, It is proprietary, so that's not great. But they have an interesting new feature called Ions, which is trying to leverage some of those, like the, the serverless idea. So they, you know, you go buy their system They'll spin up with all the all the necessary stuff. They've got a Dynado, DynamoDB. They've got a Postgres instance. It's all managed, already spun up. They have all the CloudFormation written for you, right? Uh, and that just happens. And they've got like a super tiny, simple wrapper. And the rest of it you do with the tools you would already use, like the, the command line tools for developing Clojure and Git. And then you basically write, you write pieces of code, commit them and push them, and then it does the rest. It will spin up new lambdas for you. It actually has a little proxy thing that runs that you configure. It gets a call, and then all your code actually runs on the database that you're running already. So it gets code locality with the database, and you don't have to manage or talk to any of the AWS APIs. You just like, add a new function, add a little metadata that says, like, oh, this is going to be a new Ion, push it up, and then everything updates for you.
1: Now, do I have to interface with this enclosure or...?
0: No, you don't. Um, a lot of the benefits are better if you do, uh, but okay. TAMOC has APIs for all kinds of stuff. I just thought it was an interesting take of, like, people clearly like the on-demand, they like the, the performance and scaling models of serverless, and they like having access to all of these, like, the rich infrastructure of AWS events, but maybe they don't like, I mean, I, I don't love CloudFormation, I don't love dealing with and deploying on AWS that much either.
1: Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not um, a huge fan of that whole model either.
0: So it's something, something to check out if people are interested in it. Um, the other nice part is uh, Datomic's got this idea of a database as a value. Um, and so instead of having to worry about, basically reads are essentially free all the time and you'll never get, like you request data at a time and it never changes out from under you. You just get this like immutable value. If you want to go check the database at a previous time, you just ask for it at that time or you can get the, the newest value. Uh, so it, it's not for, you know, keeping all of your time series data. But for meaningful IT, like business application data, there's a lot of benefits to it.
1: Very cool. That is actually very cool.
0: Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll have some links. Uh, this is episode 340, so coder.radio 340. You can go find all the links to everything we've talked about. You can find the past episodes. Mr. Dominic, where do you want to send people this week? I would like to send them to madbotter.com. Oh yeah, stay uh, stay looking out for more updates. It sounds like Alice How has twice a future ahead of you.
1: How about ask at West uh, at Noble Pain on Twitter,
0: huh? It's at West Pain, which is confusing. I oh, know. someone already. I had that. I've had that name, that one for like ever, and someone has the other one. Uh, I'm I'm thinking about messaging. So yeah, I've been sending nudie pics to the wrong Twitter. Head. Oh well, please do make sure you forward those. And <laughs> for people who have other stuff, not nudie pictures. You can find the whole network at Jupiter Signal. Of course, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. If you want to find out when we're live, well, there's a calendar right there. Don't miss us; It's a ton of fun. We've got an IRC room you can hang out with. Go harass us. They're talking about Fortran right now, so it's clearly on topic and fascinating. Go be a part of that. And of course, thank you for for joining us for Coda Radio. We're going to have lots of more good stuff to talk about. So we'll see you next week.